Hello and shalom. Welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I'm your host, Joe Amon. We got a great show ahead, so buckle up and hang on. Here we go. Shalom, shalom, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Image Bears Radio. I am your host, Joe Amon, coming to you all the way from Out of Ashes Ministries in southwest Louisiana, and I hope you're doing spectacularly well. We are in a super exciting season of the year in between uh, Yom Teruah and uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And uh, man, just what an exciting time of year this is. I hope you're feeling it, and uh, I hope you're feeling it in a good way. Uh, however, we know that most of the time when we approach the Father's appointed times, we also feel it uh, in a really active way. Sometimes that can be negative. Sometimes that can be tough. So I pray if you are feeling stresses and things um, that the Father would just give you shalom. Uh, but man, what a great time. So we uh, want to thank you for everybody who joined us uh, virtually or in person for our Rosh Hashanah service. And uh, just remind you guys, uh, this coming to, well, as you hear it, you'll hear this Wednesday. So uh, Wednesday will be actually Yom Kippur on the Jewish calendar, on the Hillel calendar. And uh, so I pray that your Yom Kippur is going well. Uh, if you joined us last night for our Yom Kippur service, uh, then thank you very much. And if you are yet to keep Yom Kippur, if you are going to keep it in a couple days uh, because of calendar things, and if you'd like a kind of a prayer guide to go go with or to use or to read, uh, we have one uh, on our Facebook page that is posted, and I would you know invite you to go over and check that out. You can download it. It's in PDF. You can print it. You can use it, whatever. Um, and uh, it's one that's adapted from the Maxor, and uh, so we enjoy it. We really We really like it. So... Uh, that Yom Kippur service also is going to be available on YouTube for replay. If you'd like to just be with somebody, you know, during uh, the Yom Kippur service, and maybe you're looking for a fellowship or don't have a fellowship, please uh, check that out on our YouTube page. Uh, then we're getting ready for Sukkot. Holy smokes. I think I've been telling everybody for like the last six months, or probably since Pesach, that, hey, Sukkot's coming. It's going to be here before you know it. Uh, right after Pesach, we start gearing up for Sukkot because it just sneaks up on you somehow. We know when it's coming. We know when it's going to be here. And yet it just sneaks up, it seems like, every single year. So we are excited this year. Our local gathering is growing. We have folks coming in from all over the country. And uh, I'm just pumped. I'm surprised. I'm excited. I'm a little nervous at uh, at you know that everybody uh, has a good time, but that's just the pleaser in me. Whatever. It's going to be great. It's going to be fantastic. And I can't wait to see everybody, meet everybody, get to spend some time together, fellowship, and all the goodness that is Sukkot. So I hope you have a place that you are attending Sukkot, or if not, you are uh, doing a sukkah at, as as best as you can. 
uh, at your home where you are with your family maybe or even if you're by yourself have a special place uh to uh to keep the coat it's a fantastic season and so we are really excited a lot of great stuff going on and uh we just thank you guys for being around for the ride um so before we get into this week's episode let us do as we always do and go to the father in prayer as i pray for you guys and for our time together uh today Avinu Shabashimayam, our Father in heaven. Avinu Malkinu, our Father and our King. During this season that is that can be so spiritually amped and so spiritually uh, active, Father, we pray for shalom, for peace, for wisdom, and I pray, Father, that we take Yom Kippur into the rest of this year. All right, guys. So this year, um, as far as the feast goes, uh, the feast days go, I've tried to approach them in a so what fashion. Um, not not as in why do they matter, but more as in a so we did Pesach and then after Pesach we did so we did an episode about like well we did Passover so so what because I think we have. Um, a propensity, a habit of really preparing uh, beforehand and and going through the Seder or whatever it is, the service for Shavuot or, you know, for uh, Yom Kippur, whatever it is, we have a, a tendency to celebrate the day and, and uh, in, you know, in whatever way we can. And believe me, I'm, this is not to judge any way anybody celebrates, but we celebrate how we know best and, uh, and you know, what is our custom and then we the day passes and it's kind of like okay what's next right we we look forward to what's next and this is not a like this is not anybody's fault i think this is the way as humans uh we are kind of wired and geared for um especially you know those of us with more of a western upbringing um and i know i i, I talk about this all the time i used to talk about it all the time in youth ministry uh all those years ago where it was so hard with teens because um, they always wanted something bigger, better, faster, louder, you know, more flashy, you know, all the, all the things, you know, better video, better lighting, better, you know, smoke, better haze, you know, better music, louder and all the, all the things. And it's like, you're always chasing the next thing. Uh, you know, we go to conferences and, and what I realized, uh, conferences and camps and all those different things or treats, what I realized is that really adults, most of us are just in that aspect we're just big teenagers right we are just um you know we have the same kind of hang-ups sometimes where um you know we get bored fast we want a quick turnaround we want to come you know to the we want to get through a feast day and enjoy it and we want it to be just you know uh super deep and super awesome and then as soon as that's over we want to look forward to the next thing and go like what's happening so i really this year tried to in my own life and kind of bring you guys along in some of this go, okay, so we kept Pesach. So what, so what is, what should be the ramifications of having just celebrated Passover and the Seder? So we counted the Omer. So what, 
So we kept Shavuot. Big deal. What does that mean for going forward now? Because these festivals, um, if you look at it on on a timeline, you know, throughout the year, these festivals are their own hot spots, so to speak, their own impact zones where, of course, Hashem is available all the time. Father is available all the time to us. And yet there are certain times in the year where where he invites us, right, to connect with him um, based on his invitation. And that's a, that's a unique thing, and that's a special thing, a holy thing. So those times are these, these hot spots, these impact zones where we have the chance to meet with Hashem on his terms. And his timing, and I, I there, but they're not just. You know, I thought about this last week. They're not just these individual points in time. And I think, especially around these fall feasts, it's really, really easy to understand this. That these, these, these feast days, we may celebrate them on a day or during a specific week or you know several days, specific days, but. They, their impacts and their, uh, their efficacy reverberates both before the day and after the day. And, I, and I, if I had video, I would draw this out for you, and it would maybe make a little more sense. But just think about, let's, for instance, take Rosh Hashanah or Yom Teruah. Let's take Yom Teruah, and let's just say, like, if we threw a pebble in the, in the water, and that represented the day of Yom Teruah, Right? There are there are these ripples that go out all around it, right? And we're talking about time. And then only 10 days later, we're celebrating Yom Kippur, right? And so you throw another rock, let's say just a couple of feet away, and that, that pebble represents Yom Kippur. Those ripples start to interact and, and they start to, to fold over each other. And then just a few days later, you have the beginning of Sukkot, which has its own ripples, right? So... These, these things tend to overlap, and so I think that's why, especially during the fall feast, it's such an intense spiritual time uh, because you don't just, you're not dealing with the, the activity of one feast day. You're dealing with three, four, five, all packed into one small time um, because you've got, the, you know, you've got Rosh Hashanah, you've got Yom Kippur, you've got the first day and the eighth day of Sukkot, you've got Simchat Torah, you've got Shemini Atzeret, Hashanah Rabbah, you've got, all, you know, and then the Shabbats that already fall in between them, right? It's just a concentration of, of activity. And so I wanted to, um, to approach Yom Kippur with the same kind of idea, the same kind of so what idea. Because uh, Yom Kippur, I think, is one of the most misunderstood um, days that we that we celebrate, and I I want to bring you some of my thoughts on Yom Kippur. I know that if you're hearing this on Wednesday or Thursday of next week uh, of the week, uh, for me it's next week or, or this week rather. If you're hearing this on Wednesday or Thursday of this week then Yom Kippur is either happening or it's over, or maybe, again, like I said, you're keeping it in a couple days. But I hope that these thoughts will, will help you and give you some, some things to think about um, as, as you, you think about Yom Kippur. So the, the big question, the kind of big jumping-off question, is, is going to be where we kind of center around and come back to at the end of our discussion. So the big question is, what is every believer's goal, ultimate goal in life? 
what are we all looking for? I mean, I'm talking about ultimate. Like this is 30,000 foot big picture ultimate goal. As a believer, as a, as a citizen of the kingdom, what is our ultimate goal? And for me, I think the answer would universally be that we want to be with God, right? At the end of it all, whether our natural death or whether we go through the resurrection, whether we see that as being raptured up into heaven or whether we see it as, as heaven coming down here and Hashem coming here and renewing the earth, whatever in whatever capacity, however you think about it, our ultimate goal as people is to be one with Hashem, to be in His presence, for our souls to be surrounded by who He is, right? Being with God is the ultimate end goal. This is why we suffer. This is why we hope. This is why we pray. This is why we, you know, why we do the mitzvot as much as we can. This is why we, we share the gospel. This is why we do everything that we do. It's because our ultimate goal is to be with the Father, to be pleasing to Him, and for the hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, right? And one of the things that I think we miss or that we, that we need to rethink and spend some time just meditating on is that we have this picture of being with God in a future reality where it's perfect, where everything is 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 right, every you know everything is good, God is reigning, and we're like swept up, we're caught up in his presence, right? And in his sovereignty. And we have this later idea which is right and good, but we forget sometimes or we minimize the fact that God is not only the sovereign of the universe, but he is Emmanuel, right? He is Emmanuel, he is God with us right now. And understanding that fact, we, we understand that we, you know, as the, the New Testament says, we see through a glass dimly. However, do we over-minimize the idea that God is with us now, that he is Emmanuel now? And I think we do. I think we do, guys. I think we 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 minimize it and i don't i i have some ideas as to why but i don't want to put anybody on blast or criticize anybody but the idea that we we maybe minimize the glory and sovereignty of god with us now because maybe we are afraid of being disappointed maybe we are afraid of hoping and putting ourselves out there Maybe we're afraid that our prayers won't get answered. Maybe we're afraid, you know, just to hope. And yet, if we believe that God is with us, that we we are right now experiencing, or we should be experiencing, and, and understanding that final redemption is with us now, the seeds of it are with, are with us now, it really should give us pause to think. And we're going to talk about just like four really quick kind of kind of things that I, I want to give you bullet points to be able to think about. So if we go all the way back to the beginning of the story, which you guys know how much I'm a nerd for Genesis, right? But we, when we talk about God being with us, we say all the time that we are the temple, Right? Well, what makes the temple the temple? We're the temple of God, right? That's, yes. What makes the temple the temple? 
the 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 standing temple, the holy temple, Beit Hamikdash in Jerusalem, or the Mishkan and Shiloh, or in the wilderness, was only a tent or a building until something happened, right? Until the presence of God moved in, until Shekinah came and filled with the fire and with the the smoke and the presence and manifest, right? And so we are just people. We can say we're the temple all day long until Hashem's presence is manifest in us. Now, I know for some of you with a, this background and this baggage, this is going to sound real um, word of faithy, charismatic. And I, I don't mean to do that, but I, I don't know any other, other way to say it. That our, the character of God, the character of God, the name of God, the reputation of God should be something that we demonstrate. That's how we know we are his temple, where the place where he dwells, where he resides, right? And humanity was always intended to be the temple, guys. Don't, don't get it twisted. As we've talked about many times on here before, it's not that, it's not that God wanted to, to, to live in buildings, and, and then all of a sudden after Yeshua, then God took up residence in people. If that's the case, then man, we got a lot of problems with scripture that we have to deal with. But humanity was always intended. As a matter of fact, when Hashem tells Moshe to build a Mishkan in Exodus, and he says, Vishikanti, that I may dwell, and it, it's mostly translated as with you, but it can also be translated as in you, in you. And so God being with humanity and humanity as the temple was always the point. So that's number one. One thing I want, the first thing I want you to think about and remember is that humanity has always, the, the goal has always been that humanity would be the place that God dwelt. And when we talk about what does it mean that God dwells, again, when, when God dwelt, took up residence in the tabernacle, in the temple, there was there were signs, right? There were, again, I'll use this word. I don't know what other word to use. Manifestations. There was a smoke and there was a fire. There was a, and, and the people's response is that there was service, right? There were prayers. There were offerings and psalms and songs and, and all these things. And there, were, there was a, there's a, there's a, a reality that happens when God takes up residence. And my question is, First of all, do we look like that? Do we, for all of our wanting to claim that, you know, that we are the temple, my question is, do we look like it, right? Do we, do we know enough about the temple, the tabernacle, to even know what being the temple means? And now I want to get off on another rant. That's for another, that's for past episodes and future episodes, right? And so the humanity is always intended to be the dwelling place of God, right? In my opinion, in my opinion, this is not I'm speaking for anybody else. This is what I think. I think that humanity has a hard time understanding and manifesting and making real what it means to display the character and the personality and the authority of God. And it's so easy for us to twist that, that this is the main reason why Hashem allowed there to be a tabernacle and temples built so that through the orchestration of the services and the offerings and the prayers and the psalms, we could be taught what it means for us to be that building, right? 
because other than that, it's hard. It's hard to, to put your to wrap your head around this. And we know this because we see this struggle even in our own day today. So if we go all the way back to the beginning, God dwelt with Adam and Chava, walked with them in the cool of the day, right? And God, but even before that, there was the, the week of creation in Genesis 1, right? Bereshit 1. And there's this, this phrase, this verse that we all know so well. God created the, you know, the, the light and the darkness. He separated them and, you know, one was day, one was night. And, um, and this was, we say, morning and evening or evening and morning, uh, the first day. However, the Hebrew, so if you were, were to write that in Hebrew and you were to say the first day, it would be Yom Rishon. Rishon is one, like the head of the week, like Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year, right? Rosh Kodesh, the head of the month. Rishon is first. So it would be first day, right? Yom Rishon. However, the Hebrew says Yom Echad, one day. And so you can, you forgive the fly, fly around my microphone. You can read it both ways and that's fine. But most technically this would be one day. And there's a beautiful midrash about this, um, that the light, anything having to do with the light, the day is, is likened to the acts of right, the righteous, anything having to do with the night or, or darkness is likened to the acts of the wicked. And so through this whole first verse and, and this whole first couple of verses about the first day and light and darkness and all these things, the Midrash is not talking about actual, an actual physical light and darkness. It's talking about the, the, the light being emblematic of this is, these are the acts of the righteous ones. And then the darkness being the acts of the unrighteous ones. And at the end of the verse, it says not that God gave, not that there was the first day, one day. And the Midrash asks, what is this day? And it replies, it answers that this day is Yom Kippur, one day where the righteous and the unrighteous could both find judgment and peace. And so what's really interesting is that Hashem creates man with freedom, right? Free will. That's one of the bedrocks of what we believe. And and we're so thankful that we are not automatons and we are not robotic in our faith. We have free will. The thing about freedom, though, is that freedom is dangerous, because as a free person, I have the ability to, to do incredibly beautiful things. As a free person, no one and no power has the right or the authority to tell me that I cannot fulfill my image-bearing calling. I can, I can fulfill and I can search and I can... I can discover and I can create and I can, I can, you know, see all of the beautiful things that God planted in me when he created me because I have the freedom to do that. And no man or religion or anybody else can tell me you can't because God gave me the freedom to pursue for all depth and all width his will. However, freedom also has a balancing side that we have the ultimate freedom to do the worst evil of any creature. There, the couple of quotes that I, I'm thinking off the top of my head that I've read, 
in re, in relation to this is um, that we, you know, everything was created, but we alone, humanity, human beings alone, are creative. So everything was created, including us, but we alone are creative. That goes either way, right? And and we've seen that in our culture and throughout history. Another quote is, uh, and forgive me for the, the reference, but um, man was created neither angel nor beast, but has the ability to become either based on his choice. And I just think that's, uh, that's just profound. We are not created as angels or beasts. We're somewhere in this liminal state in the middle. However, we have a choice to become either one based on what we decide to do and how we decide to act. So that freedom goes both ways. And now if we believe that God is omnipotent and sovereign, the question is, did he know that creating humans with freedom, did he understand and know that there was a possibility for them to do evil? And if he did know that, which I believe he did, what mechanism did he create to solve that? ladies and gentlemen welcome back so we left off the last segment with the question if god created humanity with perfect freedom absolute freedom and he is sovereign did he know that humans had would have the freedom to fulfill his plan for them but also did he know that humans would have the ability to commit every kind of evil imaginable and even some that maybe unimaginable? The answer, of course, is yes. So if he did know that, then what mechanism, how did he plan for that? How did he prepare for that? What mechanism did he create to prepare for that? And the answer is forgiveness, repentance and forgiveness. So this this idea, number the first one is humanity is always meant to be the temple. The second is that freedom in God's preemptive plan of forgiveness, freedom for humanity and God's preemptive plan of forgiveness. God created a way beforehand that we could deal with our choice to engage our freedom and do evil. Because what happens if there is no way to deal with that? Well, I think a couple things happen. Number one, we live with such a remorse and guilt and just layers and layers of ick, right? To, to where we, we, we would not be healthy or, or sane even. And I, I think in – here's one way I think we can understand this if there's no forgiveness. If you've ever experienced a breakdown in a relationship – uh, and I don't mean just like a dating, I mean a friendship, uh, you know, it could be a dating relationship, spousal relationship, whatever, a uh, family relationship. You experience a breakdown 
where someone is offended, something is miscommunicated, misunderstood, something taken wrong, whatever happens, or something is intentionally done to hurt you or you to hurt somebody else, and there's never any resolution, then that relationship, it, it, you think about it, you wear that, right? Whether you were the offending party or the one that was attacked or, or you know, done wrong, you wear that. And you wear it and wear it and wear it and wear it. And if there's no resolution, it creates, it can create mental illness in us, right? It can create all sorts of issues, anxiety and depression and all these, these really tough things. So that's one thing that happens if there's no forgiveness and no mechanism. The other thing that happens is that in an effort to cope with that mounting guilt and shame, humanity develops this this really crazy way of, of just disconnecting, of just shutting down that part of our, our, um, you know, our ethic, our, our, our good sense, so to speak. We just shut down and we become cold and numb to the way we treat people, the way other people feel, the way we affect people. And I'm not talking about like, you know, being so overly, you know, so overly, uh, you know, sensitive to everybody that we drive ourselves crazy. I'm talking about just being common, decent, respectful, you know, life-giving people. But if we realize that there's no, in, in that relationship example we're talking about, if we realize that there is no resolution available, then for our own sake and for our own sanity, what we have to end up doing at some level is to just kind of disconnect from that memory that relationship, maybe even that person altogether, right? And then what happens if that happens on a whole life scale? And then what happens if that is the case for the majority of humanity? Well, I think we have a, an example biblically of what that looks like. I think it's the case of Noah's flood, right? It's the case of Noah's flood. That we have here's a great here's a great a great thing to think about question, and I don't I don't I don't think there's any other way to answer this, but but just think just do some pondering on this. The first trespass, what we call the fall. Did Adam and Eve ever ask for forgiveness? Did God forgive them? And you say, well, yeah, of course. Well, how do you know? I mean, I, I don't know. And I'm not trying to make like some theological issue out of this. I just, there's a point I want to make and I want, I need to establish this and get you to think about this first. Adam and Eve. Okay, what's the next sin? What's the next transgression? Cain kills Abel, right? Does Cain ever ask for forgiveness? Does God ever forgive him? And we go down through the line. We go through the, the story of the flood. Does God forgive Anyone there? He cleanses the earth, and there's a reset, but does he forgive? Does anyone ask for forgiveness? The text doesn't even mention it. We go to Abraham, Sodom and Gomorrah, just this atrocity after atrocity after, I miss the Tower of Babel, right? Atrocity after atrocity, and evil after evil after evil. And what's really fascinating is if you think about it, that 
forgiveness that we as modern Western believers, as believers in Yeshua, our whole lives, our salvation, our, our whole being and existence is wrapped up in the idea of forgiveness, that we confessed our allegiance to Yeshua as the Messiah at some point, and we asked him to take control of our lives, and we, we pledged our allegiance, and we believe that he, he is, forgave our trespasses against God. We made repentance, and we were baptized, and we were filled with the Spirit, and we, we began to walk after him. Forgiveness has been the most pivotal thing in our whole lives. And yet I would argue that for the first 40 some odd chapters of the Bible, forgiveness is not even a thing. Now you can check me on that, but it, I really don't think it's even a deal. You have one, one that might be, might be, that's Jacob and Esau. But even with Jacob and Esau, if you read the story really carefully, you see that Jacob is more seeking to appease Esau than he is to make restitution, teshuva, and restoration. Those are two different things. And so the, the, what, we, what we will do in, in, in error, if we're not careful, is that we will think what the Yom Kippur is about, all about is the same thing Jacob and e, that picture of Jacob and Esau, where Jacob comes and cries, my Lord, my Lord, and sends gifts and all. That's not what we're talking about. That's appeasement. That's not uh, teshuva and restoration. There's, there's one place that this happens. And like I said, it's 40 some odd chapters into, into the Bible. We don't see forgiveness a thing until the story of Joseph. Until the story of Joseph. And the question is, why do we think that is? Why do we think that is? You all know the story of Joseph. I won't take a whole, whole lot of time to go through it. But Joseph is hated because he, uh, he is favorited and because he runs his mouth a little too much. Let's just be honest. But Joseph is hated of his brothers. His brothers are jealous of him. And so they want to kill him. But his brother Judah, really important point, says, no, let's not kill him. Let's sell him into slavery. And we know the progression of Joseph's life until he becomes viceroy of Egypt, second in command, only to Pharaoh himself, Pharaoh himself. And the brothers return because there's a famine. And one thing that always bothered me about the story of Joseph is that one of my, well, probably my favorite all-time passages in all of Scripture is when the brothers come and Joseph says, do not think that it's you that sent me here, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve you a remnant and to deliver you by a great deliverance. I mean, that those couple of verses are just, oh, they're unbelievable. And so it seems like Joseph really is forgiving. He's really forgiving his brothers. But then he turns around and he makes them go through this really weird thing about a cup and about Benjamin and there's all there's, it's like what is I thought you forgave them Joseph but it seems like now you're just making them pay a little bit for what they did but when we when we 
kind of back up, and I, I'll be honest, I, I got some of this insight from Rabbi Sachs, and it's beautiful. But if we look at Joseph and, and how his brothers treated him, and then we look at Benjamin, what Joseph is actually doing is he's having the brothers replay what they did to him, but now with Benjamin. Benjamin. Benjamin is the, the son of Yaakov's old age. He's the favorite. He's the son of his strength. He's, he's, he's the new Joseph. And Joseph, I believe, has forgiven his brothers. His brothers do a couple of things that are really important. Number one, they admit what they did and they show remorse. Number two, they confess. Let me just stay on admittance and remorse. Admittance and remorse are not quite the same thing. Have you ever admitted to something? Oh, I'm sorry, admission and, uh, admission and confession are not the same thing. Have you ever confessed to something just to get out of trouble, but you really didn't, you know, you were like, well, I, I, I don't really think it was that bad, or it, wasn't, it didn't bother me, or whatever. You, you ever confessed to something, but you really didn't admit, like you didn't own it? There's a difference between confession and admission. A confession is saying out loud that you did something, which is super important. An admission, though, starts inside. An admission starts with understanding that you violated either Hashem or, or, or someone. And an admission of how that breaks how that breaks down the kingdom. Confession is number two. They confessed. Number three is really important and something that the modern-day church, modern-day Christianity, and even Messianic and Hebrew roots don't focus on enough. Joseph puts them through these paces where Benjamin is now kind of replaying Joseph in this thing. And a beautiful thing happens. Judah comes to Joseph and he says, I tell you what, instead of taking Benjamin as a slave, let me be the slave in his place. Do you see what happens there? In the story of Joseph and Joseph, Judah was the one that said, let's not kill him, but let's sell him as a slave. However, on the backside of, of their, their admission and their confession and Joseph's seeming forgiveness, Judah says, don't take Benjamin as a slave, take me instead. What is Joseph looking for? He's looking for, number three, change. Because you can admit and have remorse. Number two, you can confess in front of everybody. But number three, if you don't change, you haven't made repentance, period. It's just the way it is. And so we don't see forgiveness until the story of Joseph. And the question is why? And again, this kind of comes from some things I've read by Rabbi Sachs dealing with this, this time of year. And I think he's spot on. And I think this is going to connect some really cool dots for you. It's because God was waiting to see if humans would forgive each other. That's, oh my gosh. God waited to see, he wanted humans to start forgiving each other. Does this not, I mean, hello, Yeshua, right? If you are at the altar and you're giving your offering and you believe someone has ought against you, leave your offering and go and make it right. Yeah? 
That's our that's red letters, guys. That's our Messiah. Oh, another one is um, if you don't forgive, you will not be forgiven. Hello. How can love? How can a man love God who he has not seen if he can't love his brother who he has seen? These verses ring a bell to you? Red letter verses. What I think is really interesting about this is that not only is this our, our Messiah, Yeshua, that is saying these words, but most of you will know that in Judaism there are two, there, there's an idea of two Messiahs. Now, some, some schools of thought think they're the same person manifest in two, in two different ways and times. Some people think they're two different people. I'm not getting into that. The idea, though, is there's, a, there's Mashiach bin Yosef and Mashiach bin David. And Mashiach bin Yosef comes to, as the servant, he comes as the servant Messiah. Mashiach bin David comes as the warrior king. So how unbelievably cool is it that Yeshua, in his first coming, as Mashiach bin Yosef possibly, would hearken back in his teachings to the story of Joseph and, and pull so heavily from this idea that God was not interested in forgiving or was not going to forgive until we started forgiving each other. I, ah, it makes me want to tear up and get excited and shout hallelujah and run and dance and pull my hair out all at the same time. It's fantastic. So, as we kind of start to wrap up, humanity, number one, was always intended to be the temple. God living with us. God created us with freedom, and he also had a preemptive plan of forgiveness. Number three, God did not forgive until people started to forgive each other. Our forgiveness wasn't a big thing until people started to forgive each other. So what does this all have to do? I told you we were going to come back around to the, our kind of first question of our, what is human, human's deepest desire? And that's to be with Hashem, right? With God. Well, if we realize again that we are the temple and that God is with us, the question we should ask ourselves is, how is, how are we doing? How is that looking? How are we portraying, showing God's reputation, showing God's name, showing God's attributes? How are we showing that he is in us? And by the way, let me just make sure I, I, I say this. You, I don't mean you individually. I mean us, because you individually are not the temple. We are the temple. Humanity is the temple. Ooh, I'm going to get some emails for that one. Humanity is the temple. How are we, how are we showing that God's presence God's Shekinah is in us. How are we doing with that? Ugh. Here's where it comes down to. Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, or Yom HaKippurim, more technically the Day of Atonements, because there's more than one atonement that happens. The high priest, Kohen Gadol, would make atonement for himself and his family. Then he would make atonement for the children of Israel, for the priesthood. Then thirdly, he would make atonement for the children of Israel. Now, what does that mean, atonement? Well, it means at one and I hate that. I'm, I'm sorry. If that's the way you think about atonement and it works for you, go with God. I've heard that my whole life, and I've always been like, yeah, but like, what does that mean? 
here's a real super simple, over simple way to think about atonement. So God has a house, yeah? God has a house, and that house is holy because of who lives there, being God, right? And just like any of you that are parents, you have a certain way you like your house kept, right? And God says, these are the ways that I want my house kept. This is how I want it organized. This is how I want my servants. This is how I want it clean, right? Clean and unclean. All these things have to do with his house. But we're people. We're the children of God. Your children ever come in and dirty the house? They ever forget to make their bed, leave their clothes on the floor, food in their room, don't wash the dishes, don't take the trash, leave candy wrappers in places, et cetera, et cetera, all the litany of things that showed the way children, you know, dirty the house. Or you say, well, children, well, maybe my husband or my wife, whatever. I'm not going to get into that <laughs> personal business. But in the same way, when we, when the, when Israelites would come into the temple, they would come in with either a, a, a corpse impurity or some kind of impurity, an oozing sore or some kind of impurity, and they would dirty the house. And so Yom Kippur is that day where the priest confesses the way that he has dirtied God's house, and the through the confession and the blood manipulation, that uncleanliness is washed off of the house. Now. Understand, this is not so much about the priests or the, the, the Kohen Gadol or the Kohanim or the Israelites, their personal sin. Yom Kippur is not so much about personal sin. There's one way to deal with personal sin, that's through repentance. And I would like to believe that every Israelite in the Mishkan or in Beit HaMikdash, when they come to watch the Yom Kippur service, they would have already dealt with their personal sin. They would have made repentance in their heart, and in their actions before that. What the Yom Kippur ritual is about is about cleaning the house that God lives in so that God will stay. It's about cleaning, because all year long, all year long, these this uncleanliness just mounts, kind of like the scum on the inside of a fish tank. It just mounts on the house of God, and God finally at Yom Kippur says, okay, it's time to clean house. If you want me, you guys want me to stay, it's time to clean house. So the question is, this Yom Kippur, as you celebrate Yom Kippur, as you think about the so what of Yom Kippur, after the fact, how do we apply this to our lives? What I want to propose to you is that when we have unforgiveness between us, whether we treat someone wrong and we never ask for forgiveness, or whether we, we don't give forgiveness whenever it's asked of us, when we do those things, God cannot forgive us. Guys, that's scripture. I used to not believe it either, and I still have trouble with it, going like, yeah, I might have unforgiveness, but if I ask God, he's obligated to forgive me. No, 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 it doesn't work that way. That is not the way it works. Sorry. We have to deal with each other. If we have unforgiveness in either, either shape or form, it's like an ancient Israelite coming into the tabernacle with an oozing sore or coming into Beit HaMikdash with a corpse impurity. It's putting a stain on the temple of God, which is us. We are contaminating ourselves as the temple. And so during Yom Kippur, between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, it is our time to make men's to make right the things that we need to, of course, with God, our personal, 
whatever God has, has you know, however we've, we've fallen short or failed in our, our calling, yes, it's a time to set that right. Not only ask for forgiveness for the last year, but also to, to commit to do better, to make up our minds to do better the following year in our personal kedusha, but also, and we can't miss this, it is our time to cleanse our relationships. And that means asking for forgiveness, forgiving because of this Joseph story, because of Messiah's, because we call ourselves the temple, guys, all this stuff works together. It all locks together. And if we're not treating each other right, if we're not doing the best by each other, and I don't just mean those in your group or in your fellowship or your clique or your Bible study or on your prayer line or your whatever you call it. I mean everybody. Everybody, as much as you are, as much as you are possibly able to do. Some people don't want forgiveness. Some people don't want to make restitution. Some people don't want to repent. There's nothing you can do about that. You settle it in your own heart with God. You move on. But for you as a person to make sure that you are not tainting this, this, these other living stones that make up the temple of Hashem, the other living stones, you, forget, you don't forgive, you cause offense without making, making it right. Whatever happens, we are tainting the other living stones of the house. And what happens whenever that doesn't get resolved? The presence of God leaves. So if in your area of the world, or if your world, the world doesn't look super good, it might be because there needs to be some teshuva and some restitution made. Yom Kippur is about wiping away that uncleanliness. And so this Yom Kippur, so what? This next year, how about let's make it a goal not to have that much to wipe off. Let's make it a goal to have less to wipe off. Let's make it a goal to be better at treating each other with respect and honor and dignity and service than we did last year. So I hope you guys have a, a great Yom Kippur and a great Sukkot. I love you guys. Until next time, Shalom, Shalom. Shalom. 